Hey folks, Phil here. Just a quick message from me before the show starts to talk to you about Nudge Vaults. That's the new members-only community that I've launched to go alongside this show. The community hosts over 100 behaviour science tips and lots of other exclusive content. Firstly, thanks to all of you who have signed up so far. I really appreciate that. And secondly, a number of you have asked for more info. You've asked questions like what type of tips are in the vaults and what else do you get access to? Well, in terms of tips, there's a bank of 100 behaviour science tips to sink your teeth into and there's 10 new tips published each month. You'll learn stuff like how Hicks Law helps Airbnb users find the dream holiday, how the IKEA effect makes Wordle an addictive game, how Strava uses the sunk cost bias to keep runners running and how BBC News used the curiosity gap to create compelling headlines. You also get access to other exclusive content like members-only podcasts, full access to the Science of Marketing course, transcribed episodes, and a community of other behaviour science practitioners. If you're interested in signing up, go to nudgepodcast.com forward slash vaults, or click the link in the show notes. Anyway, on with the show. Hello folks, my name is Phil Agnew, and you are listening to Nudge, the marketing science podcast. Now, all of you listening to this have probably at some point wanted to change someone's mind. You might want to do it in a professional sense. Marketers want to change naysayers' minds about their products. Salespeople want to convince competitors' customers to pick them. And of course, politicians want to convert supporters of opposite parties. But we're also keen to change minds in a personal sense. We might want someone to change their views towards sustainability or dissuade someone from visiting that restaurant that you can't stand. A few times a week, you'll probably have to try and change someone's mind. So how do you do it? What strategy do you take? In fact, do you have a strategy? Do you have any tactics? Or do you just say the first thing that pops into your head? That's what I did. I simply said the first thing I thought of. And it wasn't very effective. I'd say I had less than 5% success record of changing someone's mind. That was until I read Poles Apart. In the book, authors Laura Osborne, Alex Chesterfield and Alison Goldsworthy talk through the science behind changing someone's mind. It was an eye-opener for me and it went against a lot of the assumptions that I had about the best way to change someone's mind. See, previously I thought the best way to change someone's mind was to share facts, to give cold hard evidence on why their opinion is wrong, assuming that it would enlighten the individual to change their mind. But it turns out that doesn't work. Here's why. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. 
Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new Service Hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Alex, shall I start and then you can you can join in? Go for it. So I think there's a really important point. There are costs to changing your mind. And actually, we spoke to Joe Swinson, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, when we were researching the book. And, you know, she captured that in saying, you know, the cost of changing your mind can actually be really high. And that that is particularly the case if the stance you've taken was taken publicly. Uh, and we know that actually the public are pretty unimpressed when people regularly change their mind. You know, certainly politicians regularly change their minds on things. Um, but as you said, you know, fact bombardment, which is often the uh, approach of choice that people adopt to try and change minds, you know, it often really doesn't work. And actually it can backfire and force people to cling on to their opinions more tightly. Just want to interject here to share a study cited in Polls Apart that highlights this. Many Americans wrongly believed that Saddam Hussein was responsible for the attacks of 9-11. According to Monica Prasad, a professor of sociology at Northwestern University, 50% of Americans surveyed in 2003 believed Saddam Hussein was responsible. The problem is, he's not. That is a lie. It's a myth. What's weird, though, is what happens when Prasad and her colleagues tried to change the minds of these people with evidence, with facts. In the study, people who believed Hussein was behind the attacks were shown a newspaper article in which George W. Bush himself was quoted as saying there is no link between Saddam and 9-11. The researchers reinforced this by showing more evidence showing no link between the two. But incredibly, despite clear evidence, despite facts, 98% of those interviewed refused to change their mind. Only 2% changed their mind after seeing clear evidence and clear facts. This shocked me. I had always assumed that facts would trump opinion, but they don't even come close. Here's Alex sharing another study that highlights this point. We might think that getting new information on new facts will lead us to change our minds or update our beliefs, um, but it often often doesn't. And I think we can most we often most see this when people use facts to try and change other people's minds um, and there was a really illuminating set of studies that we talk about in the book which illustrates I think this tension between what we think facts do or the power of facts and and, and, uh, and reality so in these studies I think there were seven of them conducted in the US um, by an academic called Daniel Hopkins at um, I think it was Pennsylvania George Washington and uh, University of California Berkeley but they were they were investigating whether correcting Americans' misperceptions on immigrants would change their attitudes. So would giving people facts on the numbers of immigrants, would that actually change their attitudes or you know, opinions, or views, whatever you want to call it, towards immigrants? And like many different nations, America is definitely not unique in this way, but Americans are prone to exaggerate the size of the immigrant uh, population 
and the size of many minority groups. So many countries were all kind of guilty of this. And they're often linked to more unfavorable perceptions of, uh, or unfavorable views of immigration. So it seems logical to think, well, if people are hostile to immigrants and they think that there's many more immigrants, let's give people facts, you know, correct, accurate information about how many immigrants there actually are. Um, surely then people will actually change their views or you know, update their beliefs accordingly. But that's not what the researchers found. So they randomly assigned accurate information about immigrant uh, numbers and then inaccurate information uh, to participants in the study. And they found that uh, providing accurate facts and figures did have an impact on people's knowledge. Yay, no celebration. <laughs> but that the new knowledge had no knock-on effect on people's attitudes, even among those who discovered that their previous assumptions were widely out of kilter with reality. So even when you know, well, I thought, you know, 40% of the population were immigrants, even when you know you were wrong, that didn't affect people's um, underlying beliefs. So what this suggests is that facts, in not in all cases, but in don't, some cases, many cases, don't form opinions as much as we might like to believe, rather, opinions or our views come first and then we interpret facts in line with what we already believe. Let's reiterate that. People often form opinions about what they believe to be facts, but sometimes these facts aren't correct. For example, British people overestimate the immigrant population of the UK by around 54% and as such, many people are anti-immigrant. They believe that there are too many immigrants and they reference this incorrect information to justify their view. So you'd expect that if you shared correct information about immigrants, the real percentage of immigrants in the population, that people would change their minds almost immediately. In studies that test this hypothesis, when you correct these people with accurate facts and accurate percentages, these people did not change their opinions. As Alex says, facts do not form opinions or shape opinions. Our opinions and our beliefs come first, and then we find facts to back up what we believe. This is a crucial point for folks to remember, especially people who have to change opinions for a living. Bombarding your audience with facts about why a vegan product is great won't change a meat lover's views. Instead, you have to use other tactics to change their opinions first. So, that leads to a crucial question. If facts don't change opinions... What does? How do we change someone's mind? So on a more positive note, what can we do? <laughs> so I think avoid <laughs> just relying on facts is a key thing. But as Laura mentioned before I got onto this, this, this point, was something called the illusion of explanatory depth. So if I, was asked, if I was to ask you, Phil, how does a fridge work uh, or how does a toilet work, could you explain that to me? one of those things where I assume I would know <laughs> exactly. I start to think about it I have no idea exactly and that's exactly what researchers find so they find that a lot of people again I'm very guilty of this as is probably Laura as is we all are is we often think we understand a lot more than we actually do and it's uh, researchers will call it the illusion of explanatory depth and as soon as we are asked to explain something that we thought we knew about we find ourselves floundering and all this original research was done on, on ob everyday objects like fridges, toilets um, and zips. But the same concept applies to um, policy, like policies, political policies or beliefs more generally. Um, and what the researchers found was that when 
people are asked to explain the basis of their understanding of their beliefs, they they realise actually I probably know less than I do, and it makes in some some cases this isn't necessarily universal truth, but it can make people moderate. They become more uncertain in what they think, which means they then become more open to alternative um, alternative views. The illusion of explanatory depth was a real eye-opener for me. I've spent a lot of time attempting to lecture people to change opinions. But that doesn't help at all, at least according to these studies. Instead, the science reveals that the best way to change someone's mind is to get them to explain the basis of their beliefs, to ask them questions, to get them to break down their point of view. Sure, it might not immediately change their mind, but it forces them to become more moderate about their opinion and to become more open to others' views. Here's Laura explaining why this works. It opens you up to having the discussion. And I think one of the things that we came across time and time again in researching the book is how often that there just isn't the space for that discussion on things. And, you know, we're not saying that everybody should agree or that you'll never have disagreements, but they ought to be things that we can talk to each other about. And I think, you know, the opposite of that is that we all exist in these, you know, very us and them silos and we don't have the opportunity to, you know, discuss or really understand what we think. And, you know, as Alex just said, you can, you can pick at that a bit and it does make a difference. So next time you encounter someone you disagree with, do not lecture them. Don't drown them in facts. Don't tell them why they're wrong. That won't convince them to change their mind. If anything, it'll only make them more wedded to their existing beliefs. Instead, you should ask them to explain their reasoning. Get them to break down their point of view, because this will do two things. First, it'll help you understand their point of view, something all of us can do more. But secondly, it's also the most effective tactic at changing someone's mind because it forces them to explore their own views critically, making them more accepting of alternative views. So Laura and Alex had already changed my mind about one thing, that facts don't change opinion. Now I decided to ask them about another belief I had. See, I had assumed that if you wanted two opposing groups to resolve their differences, then the very best thing you could do would be to put them together in the same room, to get them to talk things out, to get them to discuss their issues and come to a resolution. After all, that's the conventional wisdom that many of us are taught. But does it really work? Here's Alex explaining why this might not be the best approach. I think one of the main, or I guess one of the main ways that researchers have found to bring people together or to try and resolve some of the conflict and the tension is to uh, yeah physically put people in the same space. So this is something called intergroup contact theory. It makes like intuitive sense um, because often when we when we think of the other side and we think of the them, we often uh, stereotype what we know about them. So say let me give you an example. You know I'm a Manchester United fan. I'm thinking about Liverpool fans. I might think they're all I don't know like beer drinkers, you know, loutish, um, have awful music taste, whatever, whatever. Um, and that's often because we don't actually know anyone on the other side. So we have very limited information and we, we stereotype. That sometimes has a kernel of truth, but sometimes, sometimes maybe not. So the very, the very, I guess, act of putting people from the other sides together makes you see all the complexities and nuances and actually maybe they don't fit the stereotype. Um, you know, they become much more human and much more, much more real. But we do say, we do note in the book, though, I guess as a hint of caution, that a lot of the research has been done 
Um, although some of it shows that actually it you know it can work, some of the time it can um, it backfire. So it's again, I think with most things, it's one of those things like you know try it, test and learn, but it it might not it might not always work. I think one of the things you know, that we've touched on is it, it works sometimes and it doesn't work other times. And so I think what we've tried to do in the book is set out some in advance thinking people can do on how bringing different groups together will work. So, you know, there are options, there are ways of doing it, you know, uh, and it's not, it's just not something to be done lightly. <laughs> I think that's, that, that was our conclusion was that, you know, it's very tempting to throw people together, but, you know, as Ali said, it doesn't always have the desired impact you know sometimes it will help but particularly when we looked at things like deliberative democracy and you know some of the attempts that have been made it, you know it depends how you set it up to the outcomes that you get and I think that's true of, of bringing groups together as well if you can bring people together to do a shared activity or to change their headspace or to identify a common goal then sometimes mm. you get better outcomes um, but just putting people together and sort of pressing go and <laughs> seeing what happens there are some real practical drawbacks too. It's not just as simple as putting groups together and telling them to resolve their differences. It just doesn't work like that. This is something that Die Zit, a German national weekly newspaper, experienced when it set up its Germany Talks project with its online readers in 2017. Die Zit journalists posted a simple question to their audience. Would people from different political persuasions like to be linked up with one another to have facilitated discussions? 1,200 people said yes. They were brought face-to-face, not to argue, but to learn about each other's views and find common ground. According to the authors, this approach was successful in resulting in lasting bonds, reflected discussions and no reported incidents. In fact, the project grew into Europe talks and expanded to over 16,000 people. It appears to show that people who disagree with each other can be brought together if we emphasise similarity rather than highlight differences, if we go into these conversations looking to find how we're similar to someone with another point of view rather than emphasise the areas where we're different. Canon Linda Taylor experienced this in 2016 when she attempted to bring her church congregation together after a mass shooting. In the Sunday Mass, she called on the congregation to pray for an end to gun violence. Many in the congregation were unhappy arguing that politics had no place in church. Now, most people would respond to this pushback, perhaps by lecturing, by telling the congregation why their opinion is wrong, why gun violence should be talked about in church. But Linda Taylor didn't. She used a framework that encouraged the congregation to explain their opinions on the issue, thereby helping to find some common ground in spite of the disagreement. This approach was much more successful. In fact, it was so successful that Canon Taylor has gone on to introduce this framework to churches around the country. Now, obviously, Nudge is a podcast that is mainly for marketers and business folks, so I couldn't finish without applying this to marketing. My views are that these findings clearly show why most conventional approaches to marketing are wrong. Say you're selling a toothbrush. Simply listing all the facts behind why that toothbrush is great won't generate any desire because people aren't convinced by facts. People don't want to be told what to buy. But if you craft a message so it appeals to someone's existing beliefs, then you'll be much better at convincing someone. So tell them that dentists recommend the toothbrush because people believe their dentist more than they believe you. That's what Oral-B do. 
they don't lecture you with facts, they simply say, most dentists and hygienists pick oral B. By appealing to someone's existing beliefs and leveraging a bit of social proof, marketers can do a far better job at changing customers' minds. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. Big thank you to Alex and Laura for coming on the show. They are fantastic guests and their book, Poles Apart, is well worth a read. I've left a link to buy the book in the show notes so you can pick up a copy there if you like. Now, around 2,000 of you are listening, but only 600 of you have signed up to the Nudge newsletter. So I'm going to try and change the mind of the 1,400 who aren't signed up. Now, I'm not going to bombard you with facts or lecture you. I won't bother telling you that it's a great source of marketing inspiration or that you'll get notified whenever a new episode goes live. No, I will just try and appeal to your existing beliefs. So most of you probably hate emails. I do. They're long, they're filled with stuff you don't really want to read. You know, I sort of dread opening my inbox each day. But with the Nudge newsletter, you don't get a four-page novel that you have to sift through to find the point. No, these emails, they're short, they're concise, they usually have an image of a marketing example that I've found that I think is worth sharing. You will go away with a bit of marketing inspiration, something you can try out yourself, and best yet, it only takes 60 seconds to read. That is a promise. So if that sounds like something that you're interested in, then go ahead and click the link on the show notes to sign up. Alternatively, you can head to nudgepodcast.com, press the newsletter button in the menu, and sign up there. Cheers, and thank you for listening.